what do I always do in this spot? We drink alcohol. Let's go get a bottle of vodka, drink alcohol in the house, and now we feel safe when we're going into the nightclub, right? So, so that, that, that voice in your head is saying to you, drink, 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 that's the drug, right? What's up everybody? Today we've got someone who's behind the poker scenes and is behind helping people with their deepest problems, whether it's within relationship issues or alcoholism, very hard problems to solve. He's also a writer for multiple magazines such as Bluff Europe and Poker Pro Europe. Behind a lot of things, it's Lee Davey. Hey, what's up? seeing you Daniel and it's nice to be on the other side of the camera it's usually me interviewing you so this is this is going to be an interesting experiment yeah usually I'm the one who's being interviewed I believe uh, but uh, the tides have turned and we're, we're looking at we're checking out what's been going on with you I'm going to talk a little bit about your poker journey uh, you did play for a while uh, I guess you play, still play somewhat but you've got a full-time career um, basically acting as people's almost like their life coach in a couple ways. Uh, but I'd like for you to verify, to clarify that. Uh, but I, I remember reading specifically about a major, um, hand that you had that made a profound change on yourself. This 10, eight suited hand when, uh, you had to make $60,000. Would you like to talk about this hand? I don't actually, I don't actually remember the hand, but I can tell you the context of why it was important to me. Oh, I was just gonna say there were some aces involved, and you were all in. And uh, there was some preflop action. I, I take it it didn't go that well. Well, I guess I um, guess I guess the the hand details is irrelevant. Like the message behind it is kind of important. So, I back then I was playing poker. Um, but I mm -hmm. was playing poker. I was playing poker with money that I didn't have. And yeah. And I was a gambling addict. I was uh, gambling on sports. Um, I would say in all of my addiction around betting, actually poker was the one thing that I kind of had under control. Um, but I was in the GUKPT main event in Blackpool, which was like the biggest buy-in mm -hmm. event I'd been in at the time. So like uh, 1K or something. And uh, there was 12 left. And I now know because I, I coach people in poker stables and I've been around the poker industry and I, I work at Triton and high stakes. And so I, I know what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be. But back then, I was just all about the money. Like I wasn't thinking about being zen and calm and just winning the next hand. I needed that 60K to pay my debt off, right? And so when I eventually lost the hand, um, I was crushed. And, and I remember getting my winnings. It was like two and a half K or something. And then I went over to the cash game and just dusted it off like in, in next to nothing. Um, but I guess the, the, the reason that that poker hand was really important to me was the desperation, Daniel, was um, mm -hmm. like I, I just, I was, a, I was a father, I was a husband, and my wife had no idea that I had this addiction that I had, uh, I think it was 30,000 pounds worth of debt at the time. I had no way of getting out of it. I'd run out of credit cards. And 
it, it was just a real low point for me. And, and poker is cruel in that respect because you're just 12 places away from solving so-called solving your problem. Of course, I'm not. I'm not solving my problem because there's a lot of root, root cause stuff going on there. But yeah, that 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 was uh, the hand, really. Excuse me for laughing. I mean, if I didn't mean to offend you with the laughing, by the way. It's no, just it's the okay. 12 places it's okay. idea. It's nonsense, right? But back then, my brain's working very differently, right? Okay, so firstly, what was um, the realization with how you were going to change? Uh, that's the first question I have. I've got a few questions for mm. you. The, the realization that I had to change actually came later than that. So um, it was around the age of 35. I had been married for uh, near, near enough 15 years at that point. I, was, uh, mm -hmm. I had a very senior, senior position in a rail freight logistics company called DB Schenker, DB Schenker Rail. And it was a really tough time, right? It was like around 2007, 2008 where you can world was in economic crisis. We weren't moving any steel and I was under a lot of pressure to cut a lot of costs. And so I was um, upsetting a lot of people's lives. We were making a lot of people redundant. We had a lot of strike action, a lot of pickets. I had death threats um, uh, aimed at me because of the changes we were making to reduce costs. And it was really difficult. Oh, and, wow. at, and at the same time, I'm drinking every day. And, and so was my wife. And we had this little boy. Um, and we, we were just, our relationship was just spiraling out of control. We, we were fighting and arguing all the time, Daniel. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in this spot, or certainly a lot of people listening to this will have been in this spot, where you have a quiet moment on your own in the house. And you just can't see a f***ing way out of it, right? Like... You tried. Oh, I've been in that spot. Yeah, I've been in that spot. Yeah, but not like not like that. No, oh. not like that. Not in a while. You're trying everything. Like you love this woman. You want to do everything you can to be the best husband you can, the best father. But you just keep f***ing it up, and you cannot find a way out of it. So then, the common denominator at the time was alcohol. So I'm like, okay. Um, if I stop drinking alcohol, maybe she will stop drinking alcohol. None of us will drink it. And then if we don't drink, we'll have no problems. Like that was my idea. Um, so I just, That's a good idea. That's yeah. A good one. So I, I just stopped drinking. And at the same time I stopped drinking, I stopped gambling. That was, um, uh, 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, so I haven't gambled for 13 years. Not so much as put the lottery on, uh, in a, basically in a bid to save my, in a bid to save my marriage. Uh, it, that didn't work out. We ended up getting divorced. However, uh, the, way, the way that I gave up alcohol was, was really important to me and it, and it opened up a whole new paradigm of how I viewed alcohol consumption in the world and what I found and how I changed my belief system then led to me to say, holy f I, I need to help more people see what I see. And then... And that's how, uh, what, what today I call uh, the Strive Method and my Strive community all came about. Um, and how I now help people today, not just, um, I call it becoming alcohol-free as f AFAF, but, but much more than that, right? Like AA can help you stop drinking, but does AA help you deal with the reasons why you were drinking in the first place? So we're all about helping you to become alcohol-free as but also 
then moving on to live a self-led life. Because when I got divorced with my first wife, I then fell in love with Liza, who you know. Me and Liza have been married 10 years now. And there are numerous times in the past where Liza um, could have easily have divorced me. Yet I wasn't drinking. So now I'm realizing, holy shit, alcohol actually is not the problem. Alcohol was hiding all of the problems, you know? And so, so that's why for me, learning to live more consciously, Daniel, is, is really important and what I do in my work, yeah. That's a pretty moving story for sure. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of questions I have now. Uh, yeah, I can relate to, I certainly can relate to the idea of not being able to fix something and thinking like no matter what, it seems like I mess up. Although it's, I personally ended up coming to a different conclusion. I was able to, I mean, it seems like in those situations you have to just get out, like just walk away. I want to ask, uh, so how did you actually get over those problems? If like alcohol, yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense because normally those sorts of things are symptoms of the real problems. So how did you get over the real problems? Do you want to talk about what they are as well or no? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so a really important thing to get across to people here is when I help people quit alcohol, they'll come to me and we will quickly find out reasons why they're drinking. So they may be drinking because they have low self-esteem. They may, may be drinking because they... Uh, need approval from other people around them uh, and the other people around them drink. They may, it might be a mom that drinks at the end of the day just to fucking decompress after looking after the kids all day, what, whatever, there, there's a reason. However, that's, that's not really the core reason why they drink. So, so I never drank for those reasons, really, right? I, I drank because I was designed from birth to drink from the moment that I was born the culture and the environment to which I was raised in designed me that when I reached my teenage years I would want to drink like as a, as a young man looking at other male role models on television my own father people around me people I respected in sport entertainment celebrity Alcohol and drinking and consuming large amounts of it was celebrated as being nice, normal, necessary, natural, and noble. So, so my paradigm growing up as a young lad was that alcohol was all these things. So as soon as I hit 14, of course, I want to drink alcohol, right? So what happens then is you become, alcohol becomes uh, almost like drinking water. Like it just becomes an unconscious pattern. Like 95% of the time we're unconscious. Our brain and body is just moving about doing the thing without you even thinking about it. Like I'm getting in the car, I'm making myself breakfast. I'm like, I'm 95% just a robot here. And alcohol fit into that, right? So mm -hmm. Seth Godin, the marketing genius, he, he says, you know, a good line, people like us do things like this. Like when you want to work out marketing you've got to work out that people like us do things like this and when i grew up people like us drank alcohol right so sure. yeah i yeah so i didn't drink alcohol really because my marriage was falling apart i drank alcohol because i was designed to drink alcohol right 
And when my marriage is falling apart, I'm just drinking at the same time my marriage is falling apart. So this understanding led me to realize that actually I was actually existing in, in an invisible and violent dominant belief system, which at the time I called alcoholism. Today I call it the liquid lie. Um, and, and that is that we actually consume a very powerful poisonous drug that kills 3.3 million people a year, which is more than war, murder, and terrorism combined. And hmm. it's the only drug where you are encour actively encouraged to drink it and you're ostracized if you don't. And that is a yeah, huge that's fucking problem, weird. right? Yeah, Very yeah. weird. Huh. So, so, so then this key thing then happened to me, Daniel, was I then said to myself, well, well why am I drinking? Why, do I, why have I fallen for this trap? So very simple, and people at home can do this, is just write the list of all the reasons why you drink. So let's say you say, I drink alcohol because it tastes nice, or I drink alcohol because it gives me confidence. I drink alcohol because it quells my anxiety. I drink alcohol because it helps improve my social situation. And then I analyze each one of those pieces of value, and I said, is that true? And it wasn't. Now, I strongly suggest that people should do this with all their paradigms. You know, we have an alcohol paradigm, we'll have a relational paradigm, we'll have a sexual paradigm, um, we'll have a parenthood paradigm. I, like, I, I would say that you do this with all of them and just interrogate, am I existing in this paradigm almost like I'm in the matrix, like I don't know this paradigm exists, I don't even know that I'm doing this, I have no idea why these are my friends, I have no idea why I'm in this relationship, I have no idea why I'm so urgently wanting to come when I'm having sex, when I should just be relaxing and chilling out. I have no idea why I'm drinking alcohol. I have no idea what I'm vaping, which is something I've seen in greater quantities at poker tables, right? I have no idea sure. why I'm why I am vaping, right? So then, so then ask why am I think I'm doing it and then question them. And do you know what I come up with, Daniel? There was not one reason, no value at all in why I was drinking alcohol. And that blew my mind because that then made me realize, oh, f I'm actually reliant on this. I'm not drinking because it tastes nice. I'm not drinking because it improves the social situation. I'm not drinking to say, you know, because my marriage is f***ed up. I'm drinking because I, I know no other way and I'm relying on it. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to be relying on anything. Like I don't like to be controlled by anything and alcohol is controlling me. So it's f***ing gone. And, and because I, I had no value, like there was no value in it, it was really easy for me to drink. I... I rewrote my paradigm around alcohol. It wasn't nice, normal, natural, necessary, noble anymore. It was just what it is, a powerful poison that, that, that is a neurotoxin killer. It f***s you up. It ruins everything in your life. And I was like, okay, I'm done with it. And then, so that's how I stopped drinking alcohol. Um, I can go on to like what I did then later on to help get to the deeper root issues. But the, the you, you cannot... You cannot miss this deep issue that there's a ready there's a ready made numbing agent that stops you working on your shit and it's legal and it's promoted heavily in the world as being acceptable, right? Oh, um, for sure. Um, I want to draw a parallel here, by the way. I mean, this is partly what got me to the idea of spiritual uh, per pursuing spirituality is because, like, the release from all these kinds of inhibitions or like various forms of drugs and uh the release from all these things the release from like needing 
um, some kind of like uh, way to cope with reality is uh, is actually called like uh, that's what at least the pinnacle of like spiritual uh, um, growth is called is would be would be called uh, it's called moksha in Hinduism but Nirvana is very mm -hmm. similar but uh, alcohol I think it's if I just tell me if I get it right but it would be just a way of like you've got some other issues and you drink alcohol to essentially null the pain from those issues or you used to drink alcohol and then one day you realized okay this alcohol is not actually doing anything for me what the f holy shit um, it's causing me more problems and I need to stop this uh, is that accurate yeah I think I was saying to producer Ben you know we were having a chat before you came on here and and I was saying to him, it's not until you stop drinking alcohol that you realize that it, that you really realize that it doesn't give you anything. It's, it's almost like you can get it, you can get it theoretically. Yeah, this thing doesn't give me any value. I can get it theoretically. Um, but, but now I stopped and I don't, I don't have it anymore. I can quite clearly see that it did nothing for me. Right. So I tell, I tell this story, Daniel, about, oh, yeah, um, yeah. uh, I have a, a friend. Um, and she and we both have mutual friends in common, right? Uh, let's call them Frank and Francine. And uh, I, I say, I say to my friend, uh, when you go round to Frank and Francine's house uh, last night, did did you have a great time? She's like, yeah, we had an amazing time. And and I said, and how much uh, did you drink alcohol? She's like, yeah, yeah, we we went round there and we 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 had a drink. We had a couple of bottles of champagne. I would say, okay, if you was to rate the experience out of 10, what would it be? And she'd say, well, it's like 10 out of 10. And then, and I say, oh, I went around Frank and Francine's the, the week before. And she's like, oh, yeah, did you? Yeah. Did you drink? Well, no, I don't drink. Oh, did they drink? Well, actually, because I didn't drink, they didn't drink. Oh, did you have a good laugh? Yeah. We laughed. We went deep. We connected. We talked about our sex lives. We talked about our relationship problems. Uh, my friend, uh, Frank, broke down, cried because he's really struggling with meaning and purpose and I was there present and be able to show up for him. Oh, and how would you rate that out of 10 out of 10? I would rate that 10 out of 10. And I didn't have an hangover. <laughs> Nobody did. We, were, we weren't disconnecting slowly. Because what happens when you drink alcohol, Daniel, is every sip you take, you slowly get further apart from yourself and your faculties and the person who you're talking to. When you don't drink, sure. you can be 100% focused and concentrated on the other person. The only thing standing in your way is what you refer to, and that's the drug of your thoughts and your internal paradigms and belief systems. You know, sure. I, I would refer to Dr. Richard Schwartz and his um, work around internal family systems here, where he says that there is a part of us, our essence, our soul, our spirit, um, the, the, the part of us is in a flow state when you're at the cash game tables, Daniel, that is yourself, right? That is yourself. And then we had the ego, which is split up into multiple personalities. And these multiple personalities, Richard Schwartz calls parts. And it's the parts that, um, what I say, uh, dip below the line into victim consciousness. And mm -hmm. their, their job is to keep you safe. Now, if, if one of these parts' job has been for 20 years to keep you safe uh, to drink alcohol, so let's say you want to go out to a nightclub 
and you feel really nervous, i.e. we're unsafe, and a part then gets activated, so it's dysregulated, sympathetic nervous system kicks in, and that part is like, okay, I need to save us here and make us safe. What do I always do in this spot? We drink alcohol. Let's go get a bottle of vodka, drink alcohol in the house, and now we feel safe when we're going into the nightclub, right? So, so that, that, that voice in your head is saying to you, drink, 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 that's the drug, right? So even when you take the alcohol away, like imagine you take the alcohol away after 20 years, that voice is gonna be saying, what the fuck? You've just taken my safety mechanism away from me. Now we feel completely unsafe, right? So now I need to take cocaine or I need to take weed or I need to do something because I don't, I don't have anything to backfill this, this uh, huge hole that you filled. So like you need, when you're helping someone to quit alcohol, you really need to give them the tools or something else that they can use to keep themselves safe. They need to feel safe. If they don't feel safe, Keep drinking alcohol until you can find a way of feeling safe. Otherwise, your, your likelihood of you relapsing is just it's just really really high, right? So so that that's yeah, what I that think. That's what I think you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think it's uh, kind of you have to kind of reconfigure your own biology, your own excuse me, your own uh, neurobiology, uh, is my understanding of it, right? Because you can't just like simply you know, look at the concept and like, oh, you're right. Alcohol is bad for me. I'm going to not drink alcohol. It's, it's more than that. And it makes a lot of sense what you said about, like, once you unhook yourself, you see, okay, I mean, I was never an alcoholic, but I, it makes a lot of sense to me because I've experienced variations of this. I've had versions of, of what you're talking about where I just wasn't going to, like, change myself. And then somehow I got around to the idea of it. And I did change myself, and I was like, you know what? You're right. Um, uh, the idea of victim consciousness, for example, that you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. is a, uh, um, that's a, you know, eventually it hit me like, wow, this is actually really a losing game, and you, I just had to, like, change it. Um, I've experienced that, for example. I've had other issues. Um, I want to hear, so I want to hear a little more about how you, did fix that how i did fix it yeah i mean i went do you agree with what i said does that parallel make a lot of sense to you yeah 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 it does i mean and i think i think learning about victim consciousness is is so important particularly in poker you know like i imagine there's so many people who play poker listening to this podcast um you know if you if you were sitting at the poker table hoping that you're gonna get your, that hoping that the next card's gonna turn over and you're really invested, you're, you're in victim consciousness, right? Like, like you're in victim consciousness. Uh, if you don't get the card, you're making the deck the villain and you're making yourself a, a victim in that case. And, and you know, the greatest players in the world, like this guy I'm speaking to, they, they, they try their very best to rise above that and to, and to be very dispassionate about that. and. To be, most of the time. Not let it, yeah, most of the time, not let it affect them. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, when what happened for me, Daniel, is like I stopped drinking alcohol and wow, you know, I could talk for gazillion hours on the liquid lie and alcohol reliance and how it all works and the all that kind of lie. thing. But we, we, won't, we won't go there. Uh, you know, people can always reach out to me and ask me about that. But I think, I think the next key thing that happened was in terms of my own personal development, Around COVID, around COVID, I, while well, everybody was like struggling and well, a lot of people were struggling and, and trying to uh, save their pennies, I was like, 
I'm going to go all in, right? I'm going to go all in on my growth and development here because my relationship is is not really going the way that I wanted to. And I I joined, I'd, I'd already joined this group called Kaboom, which had two incredible coaches there, a guy called Preston Smiles and a guy called Zion Kim. Um, and then Preston, Preston told Smiles. Me that, yeah, 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 Preston Smiles. And Preston oh, told oh, me... Oh, a fun fact, by the way. The, yeah. um, the one of the, I believe the first self-help book ever, I have to Google this fact, the guy's name was, last name was Smiles too. The first guy who ever wrote the, the first self, self-help book. So, maybe, maybe that's so maybe. why, that's, maybe that's why, Pre- yeah, my, that's, maybe that's why Preston got his second name. Um, anyway, he created a, a coaching, con- a coaching container called Elementum. He, his, his, his goal was to, um, create as many coaches as they could because they could see that there was so many people in the world struggling, right? So his, his, um, his goal and his wife, Alexi Panos and Christine Hasler and Stefanos Sifandos, they just wanted to train as many people, send them out there to make a difference in the world. So they were teaching you to be a master life coach. It was a six month program. And the way that they taught you was it had a mantra, Daniel, you cannot take a client where you haven't been yourself. So what happened in that six mm-hmm. months is they, they put you through intense coaching. So they coached the hell out of you and you coached the hell out of other people. So in that container, six months, you received okay. hundreds of hours of coaching and you coach people for hundreds of hours while you're on the spotlight of other people. And that allowed me while I'm being coached and while I'm coaching other people to really get to the core issues that I was suffering from and to start to heal them. And what I, what I realized was, even though I'd stopped drinking alcohol, in a nut, this is a real in a nutshell, you can ask me some questions. Even though I'd stopped drinking alcohol, I was still behaving uh, what I call below the line, in victim consciousness. I was virtually living at my window of tolerance. So what I mean by that is, you only had to say one wrong thing to me and my sympathetic nervous system would kick in and I would get into fight and flight mode. And my mode is fight, not flight. Um, so I would be very aggressive. I'd be in your face. I'd be like a little baby. And I realized it because I was in <laughs> this, like um, yeah, I was in this hero boy energy. Have you ever read uh, The King, The Warrior, Magician, Lover? Uh, no, but those archetypes make sense. I don't know if they're rooted in actual psychology or not, but... Uh... Um, or sound psychology, I should say. Psychology is quite a, a broad field. Uh, but go on. Yeah. And by yeah, the way, I, they, um, well, I mean, it, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that they, the, um, the, they talk about immature masculine energy and mature masculine energy. And one of the final oh. archetypes of the Im- immature masculine energy that you need to slay is this hero um, immature masculine energy. The hero, and they use the example of Tom Cruise in Top Gun, right? The, the, the guy that wants to go f- in a, a two, 250, 300 mile an hour. He's, he wants to be a fighter pilot, but he doesn't want to save the world. He just, it's all about himself, right? So the hero energy is all about yourself. You're basically a little boy. And I realized that, that Liza had been married to a little boy. And, and, and that, that created a lot of shame. It created a lot of guilt. And I had to go back and find out why, why that had happened. So that obviously took me back into how I was, how I was born, um, my relationship with my, my parents, 
um, the trauma that I'd uh, gone through as a child. And then I had to learn to heal that trauma. So this, this all happened over the six months. And, and what happens is the more and more you face your problems and your root cause issues and you heal them, you just naturally become a more grounded um, person. You don't necessarily spend more time above the line. So I have this concept called the line, which is from the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And this line, at any time you're either above the line in a state of consciousness or self, or you're below the line in victim consciousness or ego, we spend most of our time below the line because we're biologically designed to always look for threats. So we're all, we, we spend 95% of our time below the line. The trick is raising your awareness and knowing when you're above or below the line. So through my coaching, I realize quite quickly when I'm below the line and then I have enough tools to get above the line. So for example, I'm taking my daughter to bed. She's fucking screaming and crying. I do not want you to take me to bed. I want my mom to take me to bed. And I, and I all of a sudden start to feel an elevated heart rate in my body. I start, to, I start to have thoughts, oh my God, I wish she'd shut up. I know I'm below the line. So I now need to get above the line. Otherwise, I'm gonna be below the line. She's already below the line and there's gonna be anarchy, right? So she needs me as her father to get above the line into a state of self, into a state of consciousness and meet her at her level and, and meet her with compassion, with curiosity, with connection and allow her to have her melting melt down moment, to call me all the names, to have a screaming fit and then be safe in doing that and then calm down. Now that was massive for me, Daniel, because if you can imagine getting into fights all the time, fights are just about the desire to be right. Now, that's a below-the-line victim consciousness behavior. I, I don't think there's a need to fight. I, I, I believe that if you can get above the line into a state of consciousness and just allow the other person to be seen and heard and feel like they matter, there's, there's no need to get into the fight. Now, that being said, you've you got to think about the programming that, 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 that comes into being a 48-year-old man, right? Like... I, yeah. I, I, teach, I teach my clients, don't worry about not fighting. Like if that's your goal, you're going you're gonna to lose. You're going to fight. What you need to do is become really effective at repairing those ruptures. So you fight, you get out of integrity, you really hurt somebody. You've got to get that time. You've got to get that person time. And then you've got to go back and you've got to get back into integrity. How do I do that? By taking 100% responsibility for the way that I responded in that moment and for acknowledging how, that, how I imagine that made them feel and then putting an olive branch out there to see whether or not we can get back into integrity. I mean, even communicating with them healthier and acknowledging and apologizing is getting back into integrity. But those sure. ruptures are really important because your partner's then going to trust you more, right? I mean, I look at it as basically a very similar to poker logic. There's a lot of actions that you can take, like offering an olive branch of sorts, which can lead to a mutually beneficial situation, certainly if you value the uh, relationship. Um, like a lot of the times it's really annoying because you do have to do the annoying thing to value the relationship um, quite a bit. Uh, but in the long run, it pays, you know, well, that's one way of looking at it. It 
doesn't literally pay, but you save your relationship. Like, whereas mm. if you keep making, you know, calls and fights or whatever it is, it, you know, someone's going to be like, I don't want this. Like, it's, uh, that's how I personally look at it. I could give you a really, yeah, I could give you a really silly example on how this works, right? So, uh, uh, like maybe five or six months ago, we have two couches in the living room. Uh, my wife, Liza, wanted to get rid of one of them. And I said, let's just get rid of it for free. No, I want to sell it. So somebody comes to me and says, I'll buy your couch off you for £100. I says to Liza, someone will buy this couch for £100. She says, um, no, I'll, I'll wait until I, I get one that I want to buy and then we'll sell it. And I said, you're going to regret that because I don't think you're going to get anybody else selling it for 100 Six months later, she says, I want to sell the couch. And I said, oh, she said, how much? I said, well, we could have got £100 for it. No, we couldn't. No, we didn't. Nobody wanted to buy it for 100 So now we have uh, an issue. We have a point of conflict, right? Because I want to be right. No, somebody did want to buy it for 100 she wants to be right because she's trying to say that I'm wrong and we never had a bidder for £100. So now we're at the apex of a potential conflict. So I said to Liza, hey, we can choose love or war right now. She goes, what do you mean? I said, <laughs> we can go I to war over this couch. I, I, <laughs> yeah, no, but this, this, couch this battle. I'm going to grab it. You should pillow, pillow fight. <laughs> this silly example, Daniel, this silly example is a death by a thousand cuts in every relationship you see that falls apart. That, but because, because it's the context, right? Like, it's context versus content. What I mean by that is the content, like what we're talking about is the couch. The context is how we show up to talk about this fight, right? So you can, you can choose to turn up from victim consciousness. And I find if you do that, you'll do that in most areas of your life. Or you can choose to show up from consciousness, which if you do that, you'll more likely do that more in your life. So I'm choosing to show up now in consciousness. So I say to Liza, we could choose love or war. And she said, what does that look like? I said, well, I can agree that I could be wrong. I could do that. And you could agree that you could be wrong. And then we could just move on, right? And she said, yeah, that sounds really wonderful. But there's only one problem. And I said, what's that? And she says, you're fucking wrong, <laughs> right? Now... So, so she wants to fight, but I don't want to. So I just laughed, right? I just laughed. It was just, it was just funny, right? So, so I just left it. But, but can you see, there, is, there was an opportunity there in that moment for us to both rise above the line, get out of conflict and go, you know what? I could be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong and move on. Because the need and the desperation to be right is what breaks all relationships. But uh, I, my question to you is why, why is it bad I want someone to change if they're doing things to f*** up your, you know, your experience uh, mutually? Mm. It's like, why not tell the person at the poker table, hey, you're doing this play and it's screwing both, uh, both of us over. It's the same principle. It's like, well, why, why would we choose a worse situation for everyone? It's really frustrating when someone chooses something that not only hurts them, Hurts you too, and so why was it bad to want someone to change when they're doing toxic things? Hmm. I, I'll I'll use it. I, first of all, I'll say I, I don't think it's bad to want people to change. I I, I think it's natural, right? Like if, okay. if you're if you're in a, if you're in a relationship, like there are so many things that I would uh, that I have on a on a on a wish list that I would love that Liza would change about herself. 
there's, there's things that I'd love my daughter Zia and my son Jude to change. And I'm sure there are things that they would want me to change. So I think, I think, that, I think that's natural, right? Um, however, we, we have to, we have to it's, it's, it's about understanding when to have these conversations, right? Like that, that, I think that's the most important thing. So I think in the work of Dan Siegel, who, who works with, with children a lot, right? You know, he talks about children uh, being in their left brain and children being in their right brain, right? So yeah. if uh, using the example of my daughter um, not wanting to go to sleep, uh, she's well in her left brain then, right? She's like, she's screaming, she's crying, she's dysregulated, sympathetic nervous system kicked in, or what she says she's been taught in school, she's in her red zone, right? Um, and she's lost her shit. And, in, and I wanted to change Daniel, right? But in that moment, if I, if I try to meet her by coming into that in my right brain, so if I come in with my rationality and my logic and start saying, Zia, you know, um, it is like highly illogical for you to be crying right now because you know I'm not going to change and you know your mom's not coming in and you're going to be sleeping with her tomorrow. And, and I start hitting her with that rationality and that logic. She's just going to go even crazier. So what Siegel teaches with the kids is just allow them in that moment to have their experience. By doing that, you're creating a safe space. Now, then when that opportunity presents itself, so then maybe the next day when you're taking your daughter to bed and she is now in her right brain, maybe we're reading stories or whatever and she's more in her right brain, now you can use the art of storytelling to talk to her about what happened and maybe give some advice if she wants it. Because to me, advice is a consent thing. Like Zia has a book uh, on consent, which is teaching her boundaries about, you, you know, you cannot tickle me without me asking you. You cannot kiss me without asking me. You cannot hug me without asking me, right? Like she's, she's learning those things. And the other thing is you can't give me advice, right? Like without asking me, like think about this, right? Like I said, we've got this line right? And all of us, and this person who we're communicating with, she's below the line, right? Mm -hmm. She's below the line and she's in this drama triangle, right? Now, if we get below that line as well, then we can also be in the drama triangle. And what tends to happen um, for men in particularly is we see somebody who is distressed in our relationship or behaving in a way that impacts our nervous system and sends us below the line into that drama triangle, into victim consciousness. And we feel uncomfortable. And then what happens, a part of us that feels uncomfortable, whose role is to keep us safe, kicks into action. And the way that it could do that could be by fixing the other person's problem. So if I fix this person's problem, I'm going to feel safe because I'm only feeling uncomfortable because this person has a problem, right? So if I fix the problem, I'll be safe. So in that drama triangle, you're either a hero, a victim, or a villain. So in that case, we're a hero. We're saying, this person cannot fix themselves. I have to fix them. So we're making them a victim, right? Now, whenever you have been communicated to by anybody, whether it's your mom, your dad, school teachers, poker players, peers, friends, mom, dads, and you are feeling like a victim in that moment, right? That's how it feels for the other person. So 
So yeah, we could want people to change, but the most important thing is in that moment when there's a dysregulation is to just meet them from above the line. So we have to get above the line. So we have to breathe. We have to do whatever we need to in that moment to get into our body, to feel, and then to be present for that person, to listen to them without fixing them, right? So it's like, I fucking believe it. Uh, my business venture is not working. Um, I can't get this business off the ground. Nothing works, Daniel. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, well, you only work two hours a week. Like, what the fuck? Like, get off your ass and do some work. Yeah, and it's just caving in and my mom hates me. And you're like, yeah, but you never go see it, right? You're thinking all this in your head. Like, you don't say that shit. You just think to yourself, wow, she's really struggling. When was the last time I really struggled? And the other trick that I use is, love like i just look at, i love this person like I, I love her my job is to keep them safe not to dysregulate i love them so just shut the up get above the line be curious ask them some curious questions not why questions but more like what questions what is challenging for you right now and and also um empathy thought empathy and feeling empathy so thought empathy is um repeating back what they said so i'm really struggling right now Wow, you're really struggling right now. That is thought empathy. Uh, and feeling empathy is, um, wow, I'm really struggling right now. Wow, you're really struggling right now. I imagine that makes you feel really anxious, right? So, so you're just listening to them. And then if you do that more and more, what happens when you listen to them and you make them feel seen and heard and like they matter, their nervous system starts to regulate and go into homeostasis. And they can come down into that parasympathetic nervous system. And that then creates a neurological connection that says, this guy's safe. Right? So think about an empty marble jar. It's got no marbles in it. It's just empty. And every time you show up for your partner and you are a direct, um, your behavior is a direct result, now results in their uh, homeostasis being achieved, you can put a marble in the jar because you're gaining more trust, not just psychologically and consciously, but biologically and unconsciously. Their body is trusting you because you are creating a safe container. Now, if that happens, what you can do is you can then meet them in above the line, above the line state in this, uh, or what um, uh, Stephen Porges in Polyvagal Theory says, social engagement system. So when we're both in social engagement system, we're really happy, we're above the line of conscious, then you can have a conversation about how their behavior is impacting you. You can have that conversation, but you can't make it about them. You have to make it about you, right? Like, because very often our partners are mirrors to work we have to do. So if, for example, Liza's, yeah, if Liza annoys me because uh, she's late all the time, um, then I need to ask myself, where am I showing up out of integrity in my punctuality? Um, or where am I really envious that she could just f***ing late? Right, like I'm either envious of her or I'm doing the same thing. So, so it allows you to say to yourself, how, how do I change? How do I? So I could tell you with, with my, all my relationships, Daniel, that the key to my success has been looking inward right because it's it's a horrible feeling when somebody wants to change you it's a horrible feeling and and so their parts their ego will always fight against that 
and, and they won't recognize that you're coming from a, a, you're coming from a nice place. You're coming from a place of, I want to help this person, but you're not helping them from self above the line. You're helping them from parts below the line. And those parts, they learned their uh, strategies to help people when you were four, five, six. So now you've got a four or five, six-year-old trying to help a 48-year-old, right? And that, that's never, that's never going to work because the strategies don't work. Well, they do, but short-term, but not long-term. It's not an easy thing to get right from my experience, from what I've seen. People have really pissed me off too. Um, so maybe, no, I guess sometimes, like, I did have this issue myself where I had a problem and I wanted them to just, like, let me chill or whatever it was. Instead, they did what I did, which was try to move, get my mind off of it. Um, yeah. which, which is, uh, super annoying actually by, you know, trying to like, trying to have a conversation about something else. Um, it was like, this, yeah, that's not what you're supposed to do. It like, it was, it's like very obnoxious, at least, it, at least from my perspective. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So what you're saying does make quite some sense. Um, can what I just I comment on say? that example? Can I can I just comment on that example? Yeah. So using the using the line analogy, if that person would have come to you from above the line in their state of self, right? Uh -huh. Then then they can help you, right? They they can actually help you navigate and guide you through your emotional turmoil, and they can they can use strategies to help you. So for example. Uh, with my daughter, if she's really, you know, losing it, I can, from above the line in state of consciousness, say, would you like me to help you control your breathing? And she might say, no, okay, but I'm here if you do, right? So I can from below line, okay. above the line, but I can yeah, also yeah. meet you from, I can, I can also meet you from below the line. So what does that look like? You, you're, let's say me and you are at a poker table. You now feel, yeah. you're now in an emotional turmoil and, and that sends me below the line because when I was young, when my dad was in the same spot as you, I felt as a child really, really unsafe. So now all of a sudden I'm feeling really unsafe. I'm in my inner child and now I try to help you from that space. So I'm not, my goal is not to help you. My goal is to help myself. Do you get me? Like, I don't, I don't care about your emotional standpoint. I'm just worried that you're impacting mine. So that's below, that's that's the difference between the below the line and above the line. When you're above the line, I want to help you. When I'm below the line, I want to. It's all about me. And this is why drinking sure. comes into this because drinking is all about me. The the if you ever been out with someone who's who's drinking, you'd start off having a nice conversation, but over a while they don't listen to you. They're just f***ing rambling on about me 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 me. They're not, they're not listening to anything you're saying because they've gone way below the line, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the more they, something affects someone, because it wasn't always true about me for sure, the more you want to do what you're saying and explore their emotions. Uh, explore their emotions and like make sure they're feeling heard and safe and that kind of thing. Would that, you, that's would you agree with that? That's the key word. The key word there is safety. You know, it's like um, whenever I work with a client, the number one thing is safety. Uh, okay. It, 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 it's what we all want. It's what we all need. If we don't feel safe, then we're not going to trust somebody. If we don't trust somebody, we're not going to we're not going to open ourselves up to receive their energy, right? Like so, so making someone safe, just in life, like when I when I when I 
interview people when they come in. Like, if sometimes I, I forget that and I don't make it a safe environment, you know what I mean? It's like sometimes I can slip into the path of least resistance. I can slip into, oh, we're going to interview this guy and I'm just assuming he's done it before. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not making it safe by checking in with him. Like, have you done this before? Because he could seem really super confident, but if, he had, if he's never been interviewed in the lights at Triton, it, it might make him really uncomfortable. So now I, 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 I miss an opportunity because now I'm trying to connect with someone who doesn't trust mm. the situation and doesn't trust me. So like in an interview, in, in, like now me and you are having a conversation, you know, I, I trust you. Like I have, a, I, have, um, I have experience with you. I also have a worldview that I trust people until I've given a reason not to as well, you know, but so, so trust is really important. There's another thing that I wanted to mention about this thing about trying to change somebody as well. Like a really important piece of it is at some point, even if you do all the right things and you take ownership and you take responsibility and you're always in integrity and you're always showing up, the person just might not change. And then you have to ask yourself, well, am I willing or do I want to continue to invest my time and energy in this person when there's 7.8 billion people in the planet? And very often when we find when we find it really difficult to break a relationship, that again is an insight into, well, why is that? You know, what why if I was in my secure attachment style and I tried everything I can in my power. Um, why couldn't I just amicably impact this? So, you know, and there's some people, me included, you know, that um, don't want to leave a relationship because they're afraid, because they're below the line in victim consciousness. Like, they, they feel like a victim. If I end this relationship, I will feel shame. I feel guilt. People will judge me. Um, when, I, when my wife asked for a divorce, first time, my first marriage, you wouldn't believe how ugly... I felt like I, I didn't think I would ever, ever meet anybody else. I, I was 35 and I kid you not, I, I, it was like I was 75. I was like, all the best women in the world are taken. No one's going to like me. Um, um, silly things like someone's going to see my cock for like the first time in 15 years. Like someone's going to see me naked. Like all this shit come up from my childhood. Like all this inner child below the line shit. And then I went into the dating world in that energy. <laughs> you know, it's like so learning to set your own boundaries and understanding what your non-negotiables are and then leaving relationships in a clean way full of integrity is also a skill and also really important, Daniel, you know? Oh, of course. I mean, makes a lot of sense. It's not easy to do. Um, no. I want to say what what would you... What would you suggest for people to, you know, if they were thinking to themselves, they have these sorts of issues, which are really, you know, not only you know, easy or fun to diagnose, but to remove, what would you say they should do in order to remove them? And what would you say, you know, similarly, like, what would you do um, to remove, uh, like, to get, re I, would it be related to getting over alcohol? Um, alcoholism, um, is it the same kind of process? Like what is, what does the process look like? For me, the key thing is, uh, raising your self-awareness is finding a way to raise your self-awareness. Just listening to this podcast, whoever's listening to it, you're already raising your awareness, right? 
you've tuned into this episode because you want to learn something. And, you know, if you take the analogy of the Matrix, for example, the movie, it works perfectly, right? It's like, you know, at some point, Neo recognizes that there's something not quite right about this world and this existence, and he goes looking for something else. That is really important. Um, how do you get there? Well, you've got to get yourself out of echo chambers, right? Like, you've got to look around you and say, are these people who I'm surrounding myself with, are they challenging me? Are they pushing me to my edge? Are they disagreeing with some of the things that I'm talking about? Like, or are they just agreeing with everything that I do? So like when I was a drinker, for example, I was very definitely in an echo chamber. We, we, everything I said to somebody just agreed with me, right? Like I was not growing or developing my self-awareness at all. So journaling, um, joining communities and being um, like we have at Strive and being vulnerable enough to just share about your day. Like today I went on a podcast uh, with uh, Daniel Jungleman Cates, and it was really cool. May seem like nothing, but if you're not used to sharing your world, right, then that is a big thing. So raising your self-awareness, uh, a really great one is um, just set a couple of alarms a day. Uh, like maybe you set an alarm at 10 o'clock in the morning, set an alarm at two, set an alarm at six, and when it goes off, just pause and just feel, am I in my head or am I in my body? Am I above the line? Like, do I feel grounded and conscious? Am I in self here? Like, am I feeling loving, calm, compassion? Or am I dysregulated? Am I like feeling anxious? Am I worried? Am I concerned? Am I judging somebody? Am I blaming someone, right? Those things will raise your self-awareness because when I started doing that, I was like, I'm below the line in victim consciousness all the time. So of course my daughter's gonna say I'm not safe. Of course my wife's gonna say she wants a divorce because, because I can see. So then when you raise your self-awareness, Daniel, then the next thing is, okay, what are we gonna do about this to get above the line more consistently? You, you, you can't go, everybody should have a coach. Like everybody should have somebody in their life that can guide them, not from A to Z, but from A to B, right? Right, like just what, like I have a coach and she's here to guide me a certain way and then when she's done, another person will come along in my life and take me the extra step, right? So, you're, journaling, you're actually alluding, raising, well, you're alluding to the fact that actually, by the way, the spiritual purpose of relationships is to grow, as a matter of fact. I mean, I guess the ideal relationship is where you are actually constantly challenged a bit, Um uh, at least a bit. It's the ideal uh, it's the, Daniel, it's the I, well, even one further than that, right? Relationships, brilliant arena for developing and growing. Being a dad or a mom, boom. Like your kids teach you so much more. And, and in that, in that respect, what I, yeah, in that respect, what I would say, Daniel, is I've just been talking about getting to know yourself, getting to know whether you're in self or far. But in a relationship, really... If you, everybody listening to this, just take a thin slice of where your relationship is right now. A lot of you, right, will be going, one of you will be going to work, the other one will be going to work, or um, you'll be going to work, they'll be looking after the kids, and then you put the kids to bed, and then you'll either sit down in front of telly and watch telly together, and then go to bed, and you make 
who you may not f right? Or you'll be sat on one couch on your phone, they'll be sat on their other couch on a phone, right? And, you know, like that will be your life, like every day, right? Now, what if you talk to each other? Ah! So, you know, very simply, you could say, when is the best day to communicate? So for Liza, for example, she doesn't really want to go deep conversations late at night. Okay, so in the morning, we'll have a conversation. Now, to start out with, maybe you have a, a talking stick, or a, yeah, or in this case, a talking incense stick. So it's my turn to talk, so I got the incense stick. So the rules are, you don't talk while I got this stick, and I'm just going to tell you how I feel. And I might turn around and say, I feel unsatisfied in this relationship. I don't know why, but I'm unhappy. I, I, I don't feel safe, and I don't know what's going on for me, but I want to share that with you. There's the stick. And then the other person can say, wow, thank you for letting me know that. Is there anything I can do to help you? There's a stick. Well, actually, there is. When I come to you and I tell you that the shit bothering me, don't try to fix me. So you can get into that regular, consistent conversation. It doesn't always have to be deep. It could be, today I went on Jungle Man's podcast and really had a good time. Wow, did you? Who's Jungle Man? But you're communicating and you're talking and you're developing trust. Like, you wouldn't believe. My mum and dad just celebrated 47 years of marriage. In 47 years of marriage, they've never had that conversation. Ever. And they will die really? never having it. Yeah. That, 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 and that, that is not uncommon. That, that is wild. just par for the court. That's par for the course. In the world that I see, in my coaching world, that is par for the course. I, I exist in this house. This person exists in this house. But I'm in my silo. They're in, nice, they're in their silo. And I'm happy to die that way, right? Because I, because I don't have the self-awareness to know it's even happening. And I don't have the courage and the confidence that comes to that self-awareness to do something about it, right? Yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. I, I will say there is quite a resistance in general, I find, with a lot of people to the idea of implementing, let me say it like a normal person, uh, <laughs> of trying things that are a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think I see that a lot. I, I don't think that this podcast is going to appeal to those people very much. I decided not to, like, not to try to directly to appeal to them anyway. But it makes a lot of sense to do what you're saying. I, I think definitely, like, that's, a, that's what frustrates me the most is I would realize healthy solutions to things and um, point them out. Like, I totally agree with you. Like, why would you not do something like that? Like, why would you not, like, basically debug would be one way of looking at it, your, your relationship so that you don't have problems in the future if there are problems. Mm. Um, but... How you appeal, I guess you, it's, re, it's hard to appeal to most people. Maybe you'll convince some people on the podcast, though. Well, I mean, there's two, there's two things, uh, you know, that, that could really be difficult there for people. Um, one, the fear of change. So even you could have somebody with the most terrible pain and suffering. Let's say they have a real bad drinking problem. They've got hangover. They've got infidelity in the relationship because of it. They're very distant from their wife and their kid. They, they just cannot, they reach middle age. This is what normally happens. They reach middle age when they come to strive. 
they've got no meaning and purpose. They don't know what's going on. They've just cut. They just they just realize they're in the matrix and they're like, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. Um, but they know that. Do you know what I mean, Daniel? They, they know it. They understand it and they feel safe in that pain and suffering. But to actually change that and not have that is really scary and really uncomfortable. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the other aspect of it that the body tells a score, right? So let's say somebody, um, when they were younger, was subjected to horrific abuse. And for whatever reason, the person they're now in relationship with or about to go into relationship triggers that memory. The body, even not the mind, the body will repel. The body will say, I don't trust this person. Like, I don't trust having a conversation with this person. And it could just be because your voice is like somebody else or you touched them here or Shit. it could be something. So, so there's psychology at work, but there's also biology at work, right? Now, this is really important when you're in relationships, for example, where let's say you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't want to have sex um, because they had sexual trauma when they were younger and you really want to have sex. It's, it's, you've got to understand that it's not, it's not about you per se. It's their even if they're saying to themselves, I really want to trust this guy, sometimes it's the body needs to heal because the body will not allow them to be intimate with you, right? So there's a lot going on there when somebody is not willing to partake, which is why I feel getting above the line, really seeing them, witnessing and experiencing their struggle and allowing that to be real is really the best way forward, but the most difficult because of our programming and how we were raised as kids, you know? One thing I want to add to that is I'll say that basically your experience is defined a lot by somehow, uh, but your experience is defined a lot by what's on the inside and how you look at things, uh, which I found to be really interesting and really mm -hmm. important for a practical perspective. Yeah, I would say in many ways that your inner world, well, I would say like, your inner world is represented by your external world and your external world sometimes mirrors your internal world. So, for example, if we have a lot of chaos in our life and our relationships are really difficult and we're really getting challenged by our children and our wives and our boyfriends and our girlfriends and fellow poker players, then generally your internal world where you have self and you have all these different functioning parts are also chaotic. And if you can work on. Oh yeah, that makes part. that makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah, I yeah. see that. And then too. if you if you flip it, and you work, you you consistently work on getting your parts to trust self, because that's what it's all about. If the parts can, so your little princess, your little bitch, your angry f the judge, if they can all start to trust self and let self take the wheel more often then there's more internal harmony and peace within you, then what you'll find is your external world will start to become more peaceful because you show up in the world in a very, very different energy and people respond to that energy in a different way or they don't and all of a sudden they're not a part of your life. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, you know, you when you've changed on your journey, there's been people who've come along with you, Daniel, and there's been people that you probably don't see anymore because they just don't fit into the what you would perceive as your right energetic frequency, right? Yeah, um, that is that is certainly true. No, I totally see a lot of that. Um, I mean, this is 
said also in spirituality in a lot of different ways, actually. Um, it's just revert, referred to as like heaven and hell. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this. Like you essentially, you create heaven by essentially building it. Um, and you create hell essentially by building it or whatever version of uh, thing that you want to describe. They're like places on the inside and they're also places externally uh, in a way, but they're not one place. I mean, you can see this in many different ways essentially but uh, I, I like to quote spirituality just because I think there's lots of reason in it that people don't necessarily see and psychology is kind of like aligning with it in quite some ways mm. even though it uses like a very analytical approach and you seem to like a lot of these ideas um, or a lot of uh, ideas yeah. are at least adjacent to this I don't know if you specifically if, if what if what I'm saying makes um, specifically uh lines with you well what what came up for me when you were talking there was um what you focus on is really important so if you're going to focus on hell then your energy will go towards hell if you're going to focus on heaven then your energy will go towards building heaven if you're if you're focused on wanting the next card to be your card that's where your energy will go if you're if you're focused on um, being the greatest poker player you'll ever want to be in the world, that's where your energy will go. If, you know, so actually what you pay attention to and what you focus on, including your belief systems and your paradigms, are, are really important, I think. Um, 100% with that. Uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about poker um, as well. I understood that you, you specifically liked poker and thought it was a good opportunity you thought that poker is really quite useful for uh, developing yourself in these kind of ways. Um, if that's true. I'm not 100% certain of that. Would you like to go into why you might feel that way or what are your thoughts on the subject? I mean, people, people often say that uh, poker is a microcosm of life, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in many ways, in many ways it is you you have to deal with your feelings you have to deal with your emotions you you really have to be spending as much time as you can above the line in that state of consciousness to be a really great player but more importantly mm -hmm. you need to know you need to know when you're above the line or below the line right so now I was interviewing Timothy Adams in London after he won the main event and I said Tim I noticed that in between hands, I'll watch you and you'll close your eyes um, for a few moments. What's going on there? And he said, in life, I'm always playing the time machine game, right? I'm always flying into the future. I'm always going back into the past. And I'm always trying to drag myself into the present moment. And poker, the poker table accentuates that, particularly backwards. So I, 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 it's accentuated that I'm going back in time a lot, thinking about hands. And I don't want that. I want to be in the present moment. What Tim is, what Tim is doing in that, in that moment is he's, he's bringing life to the poker table, right, in a way. And, and poker accentuates conflict, emotional turmoil, um, failure, uh, the, the need to accept that you don't have control. 
So approval. So I'm a great believer in something that I teach in my work that all desires, wants, and belief come from three places. They First of all, they come from the need and the desire to feel safe. I need to feel safe. I need to feel physically safe, financially safe, emotionally safe, intimately safe. I need safety. If we don't get safety, then we will reach out and get approval. So at a poker table, if I don't feel safe, like now everybody's going to see my hands and I'm playing with the world's blessed, I need the approval of Jason Kuhn or I need the approval of Ike Action or I need the approval of Jungle Man because I can't source that myself. So approval comes in as a way to keep you safe. I now feel safe because everybody approves of me. And if I don't get approval, then I will seek to control. Like I will try to control how other people are behaving. I will control what I do in order for me to get approval so I feel secure. So whenever I'm working with someone, I'll say, what do you want? I want my wife to stop fighting with me. Is that approval, security or control? Well, it's control. Like I, I want to control her. Right, what do you want to control her for? Because I, I, I feel unsafe. I feel, if I don't take the reins here, I feel unsafe. It's the same thing happens at the poker table, really accentuated. Like, it's like, I want that club. Why do you want that club? Is that approval, security, control? So you'll find a lot of players, they're trying to control. And Jason Kuhn said to me uh, in one of the interviews I did with him, um, the best pokers, poker players realize that they, they are an observer far more than they would like to admit. And, 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 and letting go of control and just being the observer, to me, is great inter is internal work, right? Is internal work. I also interview a lot of high-stakes poker players, as you know, who, who still perform really, really high, but they really do care what their peers think about them. So, so that, that allows them to be saying, oh, wow, I, I really care what this player thinks about me. Now I'm at the feature table and everyone's going to see my car. What is that about? So that's because you have some work to do to, to, to approve of yourself. Now, it could be that you're 84% there, but now you have another 16% that you could work on. So it's another part of your leak. Or you could just feel really financially unsafe. I remember uh, True Teller telling me once, uh, that um, he was there playing in a huge cash game and somebody like check raised him all in on the river. Uh, he had to call some, some X amount of million and the right hand was to call and he didn't because the money scared him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So in that, in that space, True Tellers feels unsafe. So then you can ask yourself, why do I feel unsafe? Am I, is it because I'm playing with other people's money and then I worry about their approval? Is it because I'm playing with my own money and I don't want to go broke and I'm taking too high a shot? Or am I just uncomfortable with risk? Like, what is it? But the poker table allows you to explore and ask those questions if you're aware and you're learning from them. Does that make sense? I would use the analogy of relapsing when you're drinking. So relapse is not a bad thing as long as you learn from it. There is great gold to be mined in a relapse if you learn in the moment or as close to it as you can similarly with poker yeah. no and, I, and i'm not talking about going into the lab and and running solvers i'm on about the i'm on about the emotional and the psychological solvers that you should be running afterwards why was i afraid why did i need approval why did i need control why did i feel unsafe if you are aware enough and you can interrogate that 
you're going to be a much better player and a much better husband, wife, father, son, friend, etc., etc. So, what what would be like an example of relapse? What relapse would teach you? Like, what would so because the relapse would feel that's like similar to going on a downswing in poker because you tilted, for example. I can give you a poker example. I have a high 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 stakes poker player, cash game. Um, it's one of my clients, been one of my clients for many years now, actually. And um, mm-hmm. he, he stopped drinking for a long time. And then he was playing this cash game. And there was a VIP there that was demanding that everybody drinks. So mm-hmm. in that moment, in that moment, he drinks for like the first time in a year. And then comes to me and he's feeling really bad. So in that case, it's like, okay, so was you feeling approval, security, control in, in that moment? And, and it, it's a bit of approval. He doesn't want the other people around the table thinking he's going to be a big deal here because he's not going to drink. But there's also a safety aspect there because he doesn't want to be chucked out of the game, right? Because he's a big money to be won. And he feels a little bit out of control. And I was able to, sh- I was able to show him because he went back to that game and he didn't drink. I was able to show him and explain to him that if I was there, I wouldn't have drank, but I still would have showed that VIP, t- VIP a good time, right? right? So, so he was able in that moment to use relapse and poker to be able to analyze, actually, I'm, I'm really worried what other people think about me. I'm worried what the VIP thinks about me. I'm worried what the other people think about me. And that allowed me to go to his childhood and we got to a place where he was bullied at school, for being fat, people used to call him names, and that young part would come out when he was in high-pressure situations at the poker table. So, so he, he was basically playing poker at high stakes, but this little fat kid who was like 11 was playing, not him in his top ability himself as a 35-year-old. So that, that's an example of somebody being aware enough to get a coach and say, I want to talk about this issue. Why did, why did I drink not... Why did I raise with Jack 8 offsuit in the big blind with 20 bigs? There's a totally different aspect of growth and development in poker, which I don't think is being explored as much as the solver generation inside of it, if, if, you get, if you get what I mean, Daniel. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, I mean, I say this all the time. Why do people use their sort of logic to make the best possible outcome in poker and not simply take that from poker to somewhere else and make this is this is the jump that I made was well why not why don't I just use this somewhere else like uh, with my own issues or whatever it is um, I mean that's what that's what the podcast is about basically or yeah. big part of it I should yeah. say um, yeah. I mean I actually to be honest a big part of this podcast is a supposed to be I imagine it to be a bit about breaking free of the matrix uh, you could say yes. about breaking free of being enslaved from things, um, whether they're financial or psychological or whatever they are. Uh, actually, that's pretty much the goal of the podcast. So, kind of leaned right into that one. We can uh, I, we do have to end the podcast now, but it's been great having you, and uh, yeah, appreciate all your insights on things. Um, do, would you like to say anything else for the audience who's trying to get over? Their issues or whatever else or yeah. tell us about yeah, your um, program I'll leave I'll leave with a quote and I'll tell you about what I'm up to if you if you want to reach out I interviewed Paul Poir many years ago 
being one of the only uh -huh. people on the planet fortunate enough to do that. And I said to him, what is the mistake you see the most in high stakes poker players that sit down at your table? And he said, they don't have their relationships down pat. They're not working on their relationships, right? And that, that is the leak they bring in in the game. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that me and Daniel have been talking about, how important that is about getting that right. So I just wanted to say that. Um, if you're interested in anything that I'm doing, uh, you can listen to my podcast, the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. Um, it's designed to help people become alcohol-free as and live a self-led life. So if you're not interested in stopping drinking alcohol, you'll still get a great lot of quality out of the podcast um, because we're still talking about how do you develop, um, how do you, using uh, things like internal family systems and uh, the, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, um, we, I have a, a, a sobriety group, uh, Strive Life After Alcohol. We have a Discord community. We uh, have weekly Zoom uh, group meetings, and they have access to my Strive Method. So my Strive Method is a series of teachings that helps people live a self-led life, and it's quest-based. So for example, we have a quest based on connection. So there's a meditation on connection, there's some education on connection, and then you enter a quest where you do, you choose five things at random and you do them for seven days, 14 or 30 days to build connection with yourself, others, nature, God, spirituality, and you get points. So you'll get connection points. So we have leaderboards and that kind of thing. So that's, that's how that works. I also have a men's group uh, called uh, Strive for Men. Uh, and I'm also, I also have, I, I'm in with Philip Grusom. We have a little poker community called HPO. Human Potential Optimize, where I help poker players deal with this side of the life. Uh, and I do one-to-one -one coaching. Uh, I, I have uh, quite a few high-stakes poker players as my clients. Anyone who know any more about any of that stuff, just, just email me at thestridemethod at gmail.com or go to the Stride Method website or listen to the 1000 Days Sober podcast. All right. Well, thank you, Lee, for your time and uh, for everything. It's been great and... Yeah, uh, I learned a lot.